Take your Bibles, Romans chapter 5, and most of our sermon, we're going to be somewhere in Romans. We're going to start in Romans chapter 5. We're also going to take a brief excursion to uh, Revelation, but if you will hold your place in Romans, uh, we will be looking primarily in that book as we consider the topic of standing before the judge, and we are reminded that we are totally, completely dependent on God for our justification. Now, last week, we looked at the resurrection of Lazarus, and we saw that Lazarus was dead. And it was only because Jesus came and called his name, Lazarus come forth, that he was restored to life. It's a great event that illustrates clearly the amazing and really impossible to comprehend power of God. And God's power is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. We don't see people come back from the dead. We will at the, the trumpet, but we don't see people come back from the dead often. In fact, I've never seen it. But we do see the new spiritual life we have in Jesus Christ. And frankly, that is just as amazing as Lazarus being restored to physical life. Because what happens is when we are born, we are born dead in trespasses and sins. And there's nothing good that we do that makes us a Christian. There's no way that we help God or we get God's attention. But Jesus comes and he gives us new life in Christ. That's why we talk about being born again. Our first birth is our physical birth where uh, our mothers give us life. Obviously, God grants us life, but through our mothers. The second birth, though, is that spiritual birth, being born again, being born of God's spirit into spiritual life. That's the meaning of 1 John 5, 12. He who has the son has life. What kind of life? Physical life? No, spiritual life. He who has the son has spiritual life. So I want us to consider today what it means to have that life. And I want to use some theologically precise language. We're going to to look particularly at the term justification. And I want to use theologically precise language because sometimes we can be careless in our use of Bible language and we don't really understand what we're talking about. We think we do, but we don't. To illustrate this, let me tell you what happened to me. I was teaching in a high school Bible class. So this was at a Christian school and all the kids in the class would probably have told me, yeah, I'm a Christian. And so I said, okay, um, what, what does it mean when we say I got saved? That was a really popular term at the time. I got saved. How many of you have seen that advertisement got milk? Okay. And you've got this little milk mustache. Now, what does it mean? Got milk. What does it mean? Got saved. And they're scratching their head and Frankly, the, the, the problem with got saved, not the problem, it's not in, in a the, theological sense, but it's, it's poor English because the word got in English can mean so many different things. For example, to get can mean to obtain. We say, I, I went to the store and I got bread. You know, you went to the store, you bought bread and you brought it home. But you can also say, I went, excuse me, you can also say, I got home last night. I asked a couple of folks that were traveling this weekend, what time did you get home last night? They said, I got home at 830. What do they mean by that? They mean they arrived at 8.30. So do we arrive at salvation? No, no, that's not a good understanding. How about to get as in to earn? You say, I got a Bible degree, right? I earned a Bible degree. I, I worked and I, I, I did certain uh, tests and, and, and fulfilled certain requirements. And at the end, somebody said, yep, you've earned this. And we say, I got a degree. 
Well, that's, that's not what we do when we get saved. We don't earn salvation. Frankly, to get means who knows? I'm, I'm sure some of you talked to friends today and you said something like, I got up and I got dressed today. Well, got up and got dressed are two completely different things. So get saved, what does it mean? Well, it means to become. Several of you have been sick this week and you might've said to someone, I got sick. Yeah, Monday, I got sick. What you mean is I became sick. You don't mean you obtained sickness. You didn't go buy it at the store. You didn't arrive. You didn't earn it. I hope you didn't earn it. You became sick. And it's a good reminder to us. There's two uh, important things about this becoming saved. Number one, it isn't something that you start at. You start in a different state of not being saved. And then you become saved. And number two, it's a reminder that you don't save yourself. It isn't that I worked really hard and, and, and you know, I, I became a pastor and, and I got saved. No, no, it has nothing to do with my choices even, not even my effort and my ability. So to be theologically precise, we're going to use this term justification. Justification, a simple definition is God declares a sinner to be righteous. God declares a sinner to be righteous. Now, keep that in mind as we look at Romans 5 verse 1. Romans 5, 1, I'm going to read it to you. Therefore, being justified by faith. There's that word justified. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray and then we'll consider this verse. Father, thank you again for your word that it's settled in heaven, that it's true, that you are faithful to keep your promises. And as we consider this issue of justification, of salvation, of being born again, open our eyes to our state and where there is salvation, where there is new life in Christ, may we be grateful and rejoice in your mercy and your goodness and your grace toward us. And where a person is not saved, they don't know that they have that life in Christ. I ask that your Holy Spirit would bring the conviction of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment that you promise in John chapter 14. That you would motivate and push that person to admit their sinfulness and to see their desperate need for Jesus Christ. And we're so grateful that it's all of you. It's all of your son's sacrifice. It's not anything we have to do. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to start toward the end of this verse. We have peace with God. So let's start there. We have peace with God. What's the opposite of peace? War. war. Yeah, thank you. Well, opposite of peace is war. When you are somebody's enemy, you are at war with them. For some reason, I don't think this is working. There we go. We got it. We have peace with God. We have peace with God. Well, that implies that at some point in our lives, we were at war with God. Now, again, we're going to be a lot of places in Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. So just let your finger run down the chapter a little bit. Romans 5, 10 says this, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. We, we were, we start life as God's enemies, we start on the side of darkness. We, we saw in Colossians 3 that we've been translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. 
Because we started in darkness. We started in sin. We started in rebellion. At one time, we were God's enemy. And, and, and some of you may still be God's enemy today. And it's because we are God's enemy. It's because we are in rebellion against God that we sin. Now, notice what I did not say. I did not say that once you sin, you, you begin this rebellion against God. No, the sin in your life is evidence of the basic rebellion, the intrinsic rebellion, the intrinsic sinfulness that's in each heart when you're born. The evidence of our rebellion is sin. Now, some of you may have heard the term, the Ten Commandments. How many of you think that if I brought you up here, and I, I'm not going to do this to you, okay, but imagine if I brought you up here and I put you here, you could recite for us all Ten Commandments. Okay, a couple of you, brave, okay, good. Let me just, I wrote them down, okay, that way I don't forget them. But here, here's what the Ten Commandments are, and we're just going to look at two, because the Ten Commandments don't exist to show us how good we are. The Ten Commandments don't exist to be some sort of limbo bar, and if, or not limbo bar, because that's underneath. Let's go over the top. Not, not some sort of high jump bar, and if we can somehow jump over that bar, we can get into heaven. No, the Ten Commandments exist to show us that we're never good enough. They're, they exist so that we can see clearly the symptom, the evidence of our rebellion, and that is we sin. But here are the Ten Commandments just briefly summarized, and these you can find in Exodus chapter 20, and also in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Only worship the God of the Bible. That's the first commandment. Now, my guess is we've all broken that one. The second one, don't make idols. The third one, don't take God's name in vain. Honor God's name. Honor the Sabbath day. And the fifth one, honor your father and mother. The sixth one is don't kill. Now, most of us say, yeah, that's, that's easy. I haven't killed anybody. Well, that's probably true. There are very few murderers in here. <laughs> today. But you know what Jesus defines killing someone as? Hating someone in your heart. That's, that's easier to break, isn't it? Uh, seven, don't commit adultery. Number eight is don't steal. Number nine is don't lie. And number 10 is don't covet. Let's just take two of those. The fifth one is honor your father and mother. I, I can without a doubt say that all of us in our lifetime at some point have dishonored our parents. Now, some of you have had really difficult parents. Your parents were broken by sin and unrepentant, and they made your life really hard. And I, my heart goes out to you. That's a tragedy. Your father and your mother should have been, should have provided a loving, nurturing home. But it doesn't always happen. But that does not give us the right to be dishonoring toward our parents if they failed in some way. Some of you grew up in great homes. Now, your parents weren't perfect. Nobody's perfect. But, I mean, your parents worked really hard to, to love you and to nurture you. I had a home like that. And some of you think, well, if my home would be like that, I would never dishonor my parents. Trust me. I grew up in a home like that, and I still have dishonored my parents. It's not just what we do, but it's what we say about our parents that can dishonor them. It's not only what we do and what we say, it's what we think. It's when you go away from your parents, and I remember, I'm, I'm older now, but I remember being a kid and my parents telling me to do something, and I'm walking away thinking, I don't have to do that. I'm going to find a way to get out of whatever it is. See, doesn't that dishonor my parents? Now, why do, we, why do human beings do that? Because we're in rebellion against God. 
we have this sin in our heart, this darkness that, that we start with that makes us do things. The 10th commandment is don't covet. Now, covetousness, to covet something is simply to desire something that someone else has. But the, the deeper root of covetousness is this idea that having something or having some relationship with someone is going to make me truly satisfied and happy. I don't need God. What I need is a new car. Now, I would like a new car. If you have a new car to give someone, I'll take it. But I don't need a new car to be satisfied and happy. Sometimes it's a new house or some people it's a new spouse. Sometimes it's a new kid, right? We think, oh, if I had kids like they had kids. You see, all of that is covetousness and God says, don't covet. Now, God knows our hearts. And while I might look over the crowd today and say, boy, all these people are really nice looking people and they're very kind looking people. God knows what's in our hearts. You remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he said, now, Jesus said, I want to follow you. What, what do I need to do to have, to earn eternal life? And Jesus said, well, and he named some of the commandments. And the guy said, yep, I've kept all of those commandments. Now he was lying. And I think he knew in his heart he was lying. But he, he thought maybe I can you know, convince Jesus that I, I really got all this down. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, go and sell everything you have and give that to the poor and follow me. Now, what we should not learn from that is if you sell everything you have and give to the poor, you can earn your salvation. You can't earn your salvation. But Jesus looked into that rich young ruler's heart and saw that the quickest way he could help that young man understand his covetousness and his sin was to ask him to get rid of everything he had. And what does the Bible say? The rich young ruler went away very sad. But he decided that his possessions were more important than Jesus. Because he was covetous. At, at heart, at his base, he was covetous. And he was that way because like all of us, he was a sinner. And all of us have this sin in our heart. And we all do things that we know we ought not to do. And we do things that we make excuses. We know we ought not to do them, so we make excuses. We say, well, it's all right because... But there are no excuses. My new home requires me to drive down Leisure Town... Uh, between the freeway, I-80, and, and Elmira Road here. How many of you think you know what the speed limit is along that stretch of, Elmi uh, 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 of um, uh, Leisure Town Road? How many of you think you know what the speed limit is? Well, somebody ought to be telling those drivers. There are several signs that clearly say the speed limit is 40 miles an hour. And I often find myself doing 45 miles an hour with people flying by me. Now, let's imagine that I'm doing my 45 miles an hour Somebody goes flying by me. Maybe he's going 55. Maybe he's going 60. I think that guy is just crazy. Why do people speed up and down this road? And then I realize there's some police lights in my rearview mirror. And I think, yeah, somebody's going to catch that guy. So I pull out of the way so the police officer can go beyond me to pull over the guy who's going 55 or 60. But no, he pulls up behind me. Now, this is an imaginary story. Don't, don't laugh at me, Alice. But the police officer gets out of the car and he says to me, uh, sir, do you know why you pulled you over? I said, I don't know. That's the guy who's speeding. He says, sir, you were going 45 miles an hour in a 40 mile an hour zone. Did I break the law? Yeah. I did. Does it matter that someone else broke the law more than me? No. You see, that's how we treat our sin often, though, isn't it? Well, yeah, I may be doing wrong, but look at him. He's really doing wrong. Yeah, I might tell some little lies, but that guy, he, boy, the lies he tells. Yeah, sure, I covet some small things, but I'm not like so-and-so. 
You see what we're doing? We're admitting that we have sin in our life and we're trying to excuse it by saying it's not as bad as the next guy's. But that's not what, that's not what the Bible teaches us. That somehow our sin is excusable because it's less bad than someone else's. The Bible says if we were to, James says if we were to keep the whole law and offend in one point, we would be guilty as lawbreakers. And the truth is all of us started out our lives in a, in a sinful state, and so we just sin. That's what comes naturally to us. Now, let me show you the consequences of this rebellion against God. Now that we've seen clearly all of us start our lives in rebellion against God, let me show you the consequences. And this is where we're going to turn to the book of Revelation. So hold your place there in Romans and go to Revelation chapter 20. I will read it to you, but I think it's helpful for you to see it. So if you have a Bible, and like I said, there's some pew Bibles near, near you there if you need one, the, the black cover, a little bit smaller than the hymn books, feel free to pick one of those up. Revelation's the, one of the easier books in the Bible to find. It's at the very back of your Bible, all the way to the right-hand side. Revelation chapter 20, the last chapter is chapter 22. So if you've got a Bible, the last chapter in your Bible is going to be chapter 22, 21. Go back to chapter 20. Look with me at verse 11. Revelation 20, 11 says this. John is describing a vision that he is seeing of the future. And John says, I saw a great white throne and him that sat upon it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened. And another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. In this short passage, I want you to see the judge's power. It says that the earth and the heaven fled away from the judge's face. This is a judge who is powerful enough to create out of nothing. And he's powerful enough to turn things back to nothing. Now, we as sci our scientists, we can take matter and we can turn it into energy. But God can take matter and turn it into nothing. He can take nothing and turn it into something. That's where we all came from. I was talking with one of you just this week. And what helped you understand the God we, we have is that you asked the question of many people. You said, who made the Big Bang? That's a good question. Where did all this matter and energy that our universe has, where did it come from? Now, some people say, well, who made God? Well, God is the only self-existent, eternal thing in the universe. God has always been and he always will be. He's frankly beyond our comprehension. And this is our judge. The one that we see on the great white throne is the one who can turn everything into nothing and turn nothing into everything. See, the judge's jurisdiction, it says that the small, that the, the, that the dead, both small and great, stood before him. That is, there will come a day when all who are not in Christ will stand at this judgment seat and have to give an account to God. Whether they were big and, and famous and, and did a lot of stuff, or whether they were unknown and not remembered both small and great, will stand before God. And he's going to open, notice he's going to open books. 
Now it says another book was opened. Let's set that book aside for a second. Notice that it says the books were opened. You, you see, some people think, I had somebody tell me this recently. He said, I don't, I don't think God really tracks what we do day to day. I don't think God really even knows what we're doing day to day. Yeah, maybe he notices the big things. But I don't think God notices the little things. Let me tell you, God notices everything. Not just what I do and what I say, but even what I think. And God keeps an accurate record. I'm sure that someday there'll be some people who stand before God and say, God, no, 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 you got that wrong. You didn't see that. You didn't understand that. You didn't hear that correctly. And God's going to say, look, it's right here in the book. I wrote it all down. Not because God is forgetful, but because we want to deny the truth, don't we? That's our basic rebellious tendency is to deny the truth. But God's keeping a record. In fact, the Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. Why? Because they persist in their wickedness. It's not just a once in a while thing that God looks down. Oh, hey, hey, stop doing that. No, no, no. God notices everything you do. Now, this is amazing to us because I have trouble keeping track of what I'm doing, much less what my wife and child number one and child number two and child number three and child. I can't keep track of what everyone does. But God is infinite. And he's tracking each one of us. Our thoughts, yes, what we say, yes, and what we do. And he's keeping books. And it says in verse 15, whosoever was not found written in the book of life, that's that book we set aside for a second, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's the judge's sentence. He says, if you're relying on your works, if we just look through, not the, the Lamb's book of life, if we just look through these books here, and we look at your deeds, your works, what you've done, what you've said, what you've, what you've thought, those things, those actions, that kind of life will take you, it says here, into the lake of fire. There's one exception, and that exception is for those whose name was written in the book of life. Verse 15, whosoever was not found written in the book of life. So how do we avoid this judgment? We need our name written in that book. It's not something you're going to do. You need your name written in that book. You say, well, how do I get my name written in that book? I'm glad you asked. Go back to Romans now. Let's look at Romans 5 again. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We start out in a state of rebellion against God. And because we're in rebellion against God, we sin. We do things that dishonor our parents. We covet. We harbor hatred and anger in our hearts. We say things that are corrupt and, and hurt and defile other people. We think uh, uh, sinful thoughts. All of the, that, that's just evidence of our sinfulness. So how do we get our name written in that book of life? How do we how are we justified? How is it that God declares any of us to be righteous? Well, again, Romans 5.1, therefore being justified. Remember I said justification is God declaring a sinner to be righteous. I want you to notice the English here. And if you were not good at English in high school, that's okay. You go talk to Javen. He's really good at English, aren't you, Javen? Yes. And being justified is in the passive, which simply means it's not something you do. 
It's something that's done to you. Being justified. It's not something I do. It's something that someone else does to me. And in this case, it's God who justifies me. Now you say, how do you know that? Well, back up one verse, Romans chapter four, verse 25. Well, verse 24, so you can understand the who there. Romans 4, 24, just ahead of Romans 5, 5, 1. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. It's a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who, this is Jesus, was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. It is Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection that paves a path so that God the Father can declare me to be righteous. Now, many people here, at this point, many people would want to justify themselves. They want to say, you know, uh, preacher, I, I hear what you're saying, but let me tell you all the good things that I've done. Well, hold your place there in Romans chapter 5 and turn to Romans 10, a few, few chapters away in verse 3. We're going to look at Romans 10.3. Romans 10.3 says this, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves into the righteousness of God. Do you see that there are two paths in this verse? One is to try to establish your own righteousness. Remember, justification is when God the judge declares a sinner to be righteous. But I say, I don't want to use that path. I want to establish my own righteousness. The problem is if we, if we attempt to establish our own righteousness, guess what we do not do? We don't submit to the righteousness of God. There's only two paths here. You can either try to do it yourself or you can allow God to justify you. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, maybe you've met someone. I know I've met a lot of people and they'll say, yeah, Jesus died for my sin. Yeah, I realize Jesus rose from the dead, but, but let me tell you, I have to do something too. No, no, that would be establishing your own righteousness. It's nothing that you add to Jesus. It's nothing that you do with Jesus. Let's go back to last week's message about Lazarus. Do you remember Lazarus was dead? Let's imagine that Lazarus was dead, but he could think. Now, I know he can't, but let's imagine he could think. And he thought, you know what? I've got to help Jesus resurrect me from the dead. What would Lazarus do? He's dead. There is nothing he can do. He can't lift his arms. He can't lift his legs. I mean, he can't. He's, he's dead. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now that's a spiritual death. There's nothing we do. We don't add to Jesus' sacrifice. We don't cooperate with God in our salvation and and do something alongside what he's doing. That's not even possible. That's establishing our own righteousness. God has a righteousness that he wants to give to us. And the reason we can never establish our own righteousness is because here's God's standard. He says, God says, be ye therefore perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. You might be a lot better than me. You might drive 41 on Leisure Town Road, but you are not perfect. 
It's like setting a high bar to jump over of 2,000 feet. Maybe I can only jump a six-foot bar. And maybe you can jump an eight-foot bar. But you're not going to make 2,000 feet. It's like the two guys that were standing on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. And the one guy said to the other, I bet I can jump farther than you. That doesn't even make sense. Because once you jump out into that canyon, you're going to die. Now, yeah, you might be able to jump farther than your friend, but neither one of you is going to make it. Don't attempt to establish your own righteousness. Being justified. It's not that I justify myself. God must justify me. God is the one who looks at me and declares me to be righteous. There's a reason that we sing the song, and we're going to close with this song today. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, most of us don't use wretch much anymore. If we do, it's the R-E-T-C-H, and I'll let you look up that definition on your own. Wretch, W-R-E-T-C-H, refers to the fact that I'm a terribly bad person. The man who wrote that song, John Newton, had been a slave trader. He had taken people from Africa and enslaved them and brought them to the new world and sold them. And he recognized how evil he was that, he, that God would save a wretch like him. Now, you may not have, in fact, I, I, can, I can guarantee you, you've not been in the slave trade. And that's, praise the Lord, slavery is such an evil thing. But each one of us, when we stand before a holy God, we are wretches. We're not righteous. And it's God who justifies us. Now go back to Romans 3, verse 24. We're going to look at this word justified again. Justification, God declares me to be righteous. That doesn't seem quite fair. And here's why that doesn't seem quite fair. Because what God is offering to do is he's offering to take a wretch like me, a sinner like me, someone who is in rebellion like me, and instead of give me what I deserve, he's going to offer me his righteousness. That doesn't seem fair. So let's look at Romans chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in verse 24. Being justified, there's that word again, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Think, when you see that word propitiation, think the word payment. Whom God has set forward, forth to be a payment through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness. Not your righteousness, not my righteousness. Not Baptist righteousness or Methodist righteousness or Buddhist righteousness. To declare God's righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Now verse 26, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just. That God might be a God of justice and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. God is both just. He's a God of justice. And he's also the one who declares me to be righteous. How does he do that? He takes my sin payment that I deserve to pay and he puts it upon Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, 
who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. My sin payment, God the Father took that sin payment that I deserve to pay and he put it on Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 tells us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him, on the Messiah, on the Savior, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that God says, yes, I can declare you a sinner to be righteous because I've taken your sin penalty and I've given it to my son. It's as if you're standing before the judge and you've already gone through the jury trial and you were declared guilty and now it's the penalty phase. And the judge says, you know what? I'm going to pay the penalty for you. I'm going to have my son take that penalty. That's what God did for us. When we talk about Jesus Christ dying on the cross, why did he have to die? He had to die because I'm a sinner, because you're a sinner, because of this rebellion and this darkness in our hearts. It had to be dealt with. It had to be, that penalty had to be paid. And so God the Father gives it to his son, Jesus Christ. He hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Now, you remember what Romans 10.3 said? If you don't remember, turn back to Romans 10.3. It said this, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, this is Romans 10, verse 3, they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, stop right there. You mean God has a righteousness that he's willing to give us? That's exactly right. He, Jesus Christ, became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. So how do we submit to the righteousness of God? Uh, let me read the whole verse for you. Romans 10, 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. How do we submit to the righteousness of God? How do we obtain, how do we get that righteousness? This is the good news I have for you. Go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through whom? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has already paid your penalty for sin. In fact, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he said, it is finished. It means it is paid. It's done. The penalty is complete is completed. There's no more that you and I have to accomplish. Jesus Christ paid the penalty. We saw last week, Lazarus was dead. He was in the tomb. There was nothing he could do. And Jesus said, Lazarus come forth. And suddenly Lazarus has new life. And God wants to do the same thing for each of us. He wants to give us new spiritual life, not new physical life. You're alive today. You're here, but new New spiritual life. How do we get that spiritual life? Again, Romans 5, verse 1, therefore being justified by faith. By faith. We are justified by faith. Not faith in my ability. Not faith in the church. Not faith in your preacher. Please, not faith in your preacher. Not faith in anything you can do or say or be by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are three aspects to this faith. Let me, I don't have much time, so let me talk about them quickly. Number one, the first thing is you have to understand. 
You have to understand what I'm saying. You have to. If you don't understand what I'm saying, if, if it's all just uh, trigonometry to you and you're not a math person, you, you, you know, it's sine and cosine. And you say, I don't even know what sine and cosine is. Right? It's like if I were speaking to you in Mongolian and I could speak great Mongolian, but it's, it's all Mongolian to me. You have no idea what I said. My guess is most of you today, you do understand. So let's take the second step. You have to agree with what I said. You have to say, yeah, you're right. Yep, the Bible is true. You're right. I am in rebellion against God. I am a sinner. I can't save myself. I've tried. Or maybe I haven't tried. Maybe I haven't even cared up to this point. But you're right. You have to agree. You have to agree that Jesus Christ died in your place and rose again. You have to agree that that's true. But there's one more step. And to illustrate that last step, let's imagine. And uh, by the way, if you're wondering why I often use Mongolian uh, uh, references is because we spent 11 years in Mongolia, and so a lot of things that we did in Mongolia are helpful to me. A couple of years ago, we took my son Caleb, my dad and I, we took my son Caleb to the Mongolian consulate in San Francisco. You didn't even know that the Mongolians had a consulate in San Francisco, but we took him there so that he could get a Mongolian visa, and it worked out great. So let's imagine you say to me, hey, preacher, I would like to go and I'd like to visit Mongolia, and I say, okay, that's great, but you're going to need a visa and what you're going to need to do to get that visa is you need to come with me and we need to go to the Mongolian consulate. You can understand what I said. Okay, he's saying I have to go to the Mongolian consulate. Number two, you can agree with me. Yep, you're right. We've got to go to the Mongolian consulate. But here's the third thing you have to do. You have to get into my car. Because do you know where the Mongolian consulate is? When you get there, can you speak Mongolian? What we did for my son, we went in, we started speaking English. And it was like, who are you guys? And then I switched to Mongolian and I said, hey, I speak Mongolian. Hey, I've been in Mongolia. I lived there. You, oh, come on into the office. You need a visa? There you go. Go home. We can fix it, but you got to come with me. You can't, you can't do this on your own. Now, this is only a small and a silly example. The truth is salvation, you are completely dependent upon Jesus Christ. You have to understand, you have to agree, and then you've got to quit trying yourself. And you've got to trust in what Jesus Christ has already done for you. You've got to quit thinking, boy, I'll just go to church a few more times. I'll just be a better father. I'll just be a better mother. I'll just quit doing this wrong thing, or I'll start doing this right thing. Stop. Stop. Justification is not by your works or you're bettering yourself. It's by faith in Jesus Christ that his payment on the cross was sufficient for you. Again, Romans 4.25, just above Romans 5.1, Jesus was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Have you been justified? Has God justified you? Has God declared you to be righteous? Not because of anything you did. Not because you're a pretty good person. Not because you came today or because you like me or you dislike me. or not, not, Nothing to do with that. But because you have faith that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin, rose again. Do you have that new life? The Bible says he who has the son has life. Do you have that new life in Christ? Are you a child of God? If you are, 
I want you to rejoice today that it's nothing you did. It's nothing you have to do. You don't even have to keep it up. Because frankly, if my salvation depended upon me, I would lose my salvation. But my salvation doesn't depend on me. It depends on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Have you received and opened up that gift of eternal life? In a few minutes, we're going to have an invitation. And what I want to do is I want to encourage you, if you don't know that your sins are forgiven and that you have this new life in Christ, if you're not convinced that God has justified you, that God has declared you to be righteous, I want you to come. As the others stand and they sing, I want you to come to the front. I've got some people lined up. They're ready. We'll take a Bible and we'll show you from God's word how you can know your sins are forgiven and how, know that you're justified. Know that you have eternal life. This is the most important thing in your life. This is it. More important than who you marry and who you marry is really important. More important than where you live or what your job is. It's, it's more important than all of that. Because remember, we have peace with God. If you've not been justified, you're currently in a war against God and you will lose. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe you'll live a long life. But when you come to the end of that life, you will stand before the judge and he will open his books and your actions and your deeds and your rebellion against God will condemn you to the lake of fire forever. There's no do-over. There's no get a second chance. There's no reincarnation. The Bible says, as it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. This is the day. This is your chance. God wants to justify. God stands willing to forgive but we have to have faith. We have to say, yes, you're right, Lord. I've been wrong. I am wrong. Forgive me. Justify me. Give me that new life in Christ. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you that it's clear to us. And I'm asking you this morning on behalf of those that are here who are not your children. They're not Christians. They've not been saved from their sin. They're not justified. They're currently at war with you. I'm asking that today would be the day of salvation for them. Again, it's not my work. It's your Holy Spirit. Not by my might, not by my power, but by your Spirit, saith the Lord. And I'm asking your Holy Spirit to work powerfully in my heart, work powerfully in our hearts, and to draw to yourself those that need this justification. I'm asking that you would give us a fresh Give us Christians a fresh vision for what your justification cost your son, Jesus Christ, to be grateful for it, to live as if our lives are changed. But again, Lord, for those that are not your children, those that are not Christians, I pray this morning, this afternoon for their salvation. And I ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.